Welcome to Saving You is Killing Me, Loving Someone with an Addiction podcast. Loving someone with an addiction is a life of chaos. This podcast is to help you take back your power and build strength, hope, and restore peace in your life. We use the science and art of positive psychology, professionals in their field, along with personal stories of hope, resilience, and strength. We hope you can discover how the courage to focus on you can help put your life back together. When you are in a place of exhaustion, hopelessness, and emptiness, we are a community that knows all too well the turmoil that comes from loving someone with an addiction. We are here to help you compassionately struggle well. Hey there, you're listening to the Saving You Is Killing Me podcast hosted by me, Andrea Seidel. I'm the author and founder of Saving You Is Killing Me, Loving Someone With An Addiction. This podcast is for you if you're ready to find a way to struggle well, take back your power, and live life happier while you're navigating loving or losing someone to addiction. I wholeheartedly believe that when you love someone with an addiction, your life gets damaged in some way. Since we can't control someone else's addiction, but we are greatly affected by it, the number one thing you can do is take back your power and focus on you. I believe happiness, joy, and well-being is available to anyone. So the thoughts and perspectives I share here on the show are my own and those of the guests on the show. If you ever hear anything that feels harmful or triggering, I'm pre-apologizing and I'm open to being better and value any feedback and the permission to be human. That said, always take what you love, what feels good and leave the rest. The conversations and tools I'll share here will give you everything you need to figure out exactly how to navigate addiction, put yourself first, and how to build resilience for your well-being in a way that feels really, really good. I use these tools to take back the power in my life to build my strength back up and restore peace. And I teach my clients how to create their own version of a life where they can tap into their power and restore their happiness. My goal is for you to listen and leave saying, why is this the only family or spouse support system that doesn't make you feel like you're the problem? And it feels so energizing, empowering, and uplifting thinking that you're not going crazy after all. I am here for you. Finally, please know you are not alone and you are worthy of prioritizing your well-being. So let's jump into the show. Hey there, Andrea Seidel here. I'm so excited because this is my third time recording the introduction and I decided that I'm just going to go with it and just let my guest introduce himself. I am so thrilled to welcome you to the show. Thank you so much for being here, Casey. Thank you so much. So yes, my name is Casey Ariaga. It's a tricky name for people. It's A-R-R-I-L-L-A-G-A. And those L's have been tripping people up for as long as I've been alive. <laughs> and I'm sure much longer, but that is okay. I warned my wife. You marry me and you take my last name. No one's ever going to pronounce your full name properly the first time or spell <laughs> the first name, uh, you know, the the full thing properly. I'm even stumbling over talking about <laughs> name, but that is okay. It has not gotten in my way. Um, in fact, if anything, it's kind of nice to be a little unique. 
Yes. And it will make people practice your name. It will make you stand out. So, and you are the amazing author of Realistic Hope. And I'm just so thankful for you being here and taking the time to share your wisdom and your knowledge with our community. Um, it's just, I'm just so grateful. So how about you just introduce us, you know, what are you up to these days and who are you, Casey? Sure. Okay. So I could approach that question a bunch of different ways. So I'll go with this. I'm somebody who grew up in and around addiction. I was born to a couple of people who had a lot of features of sex and love addiction. One of them owns that. One of them's like, oh, I don't know if I really see it. But all I'll say is they met very young. They got pregnant on the first date. That's me. Um, they decided to get married. This would be the late 60s. And just kind of before they even knew they were pregnant, they're like, hey, we think we're a good fit. Again, young sex and love addicts probably. You know, meet, meet fast, marry fast, jump into family life fast. Um, but they had a lot of trouble emotionally connecting you know, with themselves and with me. Uh, my birth mother was uh, kind of newly out of a psych hospital with some, at the time, relatively experimental um, psychiatric medications. And she found that she could not really connect with me very well, except under one condition. And that's when we were nursing together. And then she felt connected. And the reason I point that out is because through my own healing journey over the years, um, I unearthed a memory that she's actually confirmed of us nursing together. It's a very early memory. And of course, memories at that age are just like a little flash, just a thought. And so the flash in the image was me thinking, I need to keep her attention for as long as possible, and I need to get as much as I can as fast as I can. And that set up the pattern for the next 30 years, that idea that I needed to grab as much as I can, as fast as I can. And that just launched me into the family pattern of addiction. So fast forward 30 years, I started getting into my own recovery, having been through a journey both with my birth family, we just talked about, I was adopted to two years old into my adoptive family where my dad had huge problems with alcohol and that dominated family life in a lot of ways. So I grew up around the pattern there and I always said, well, that'll never be me. But by 10 years old, I had decided that that path around sex and love addiction, not that I would have ever used those words, but that idea, this is my form of escape. Food also, adrenaline, thrill-seeking, all kinds of things. Later, I did get into alcohol, I just kind of mixing all this stuff. So around age 30, I realized, like, this is not working. This is all going to fall apart. And it took a nudge from a therapist to say, like, hey, do you think this might be addiction? And I'm like, no, I had never thought of that. So I get into recovery. After some fits and starts, I never really dropped out, but I went up and down like a lot of people do in early recovery. And a lot of us see people we love. If they're getting into recovery, we might think, okay, this is it. You know, they're finally getting better. And then up, relapse, up, relapse, getting back up. Some do, some don't. I'm one of the lucky ones who kept get, getting back up and just thinking like, no, I can get this. And after a few years, start to sustain recovery and get sustained recovery. So that's about 16 coming up on 17 years ago now where I was able to plant a flag and say, this is it, sober from here on out. And by the grace of my higher power, that has been true. So there we are. And one day, could be a higher power thing, could just be luck, whatever you choose to believe. I stumbled into a job, which is not the job I was even going for, but I stumbled into a job and go in to do the interview. The guy says, do you know anything about recovery? And at that point, I was like, well, yeah, I got a couple years sober. And we're kind of talking about it. He goes, hey, me too. And we start talking. He goes, well, so this is an addiction treatment center. I had had no idea when I went to interview. That's what it was. 
so all of a sudden I work in the uh, recovery field. And I thought, well, this kind of fits. Okay, I'm a guy in recovery, working, helping other people recover. Let's do it. And after about six months or a year or so, I got called into the, the office by the owner. And he says, you should be a counselor. I'm like, uh, so I've tried school a number of times. It never really worked out. <laughs> um, and he said the magic words. He said, we'll pay for half. I was like, well, put it like that. And my huge grand design at that point is I'm going to get an associate's degree, which sounded like, wow, I could actually have a college degree. And, um, and on that basis, you can be a chemical dependency counselor. The, the bar is relatively low, educationally wise. Helps a lot. A lot of people going to that field have the life experience themselves of being in recovery. So I did that. That ended up turning into a bachelor's degree, which ended up turning into a master's in social work, which is where I'm at now. I'm a clinical social worker. But along the way, somebody at the treatment center said, we want you to sit in and watch a family workshop. Just see what happens. Fly on the wall. Don't say a word. You just sit in the back and just watch it. And so I did. And to this day, I don't know if they were thinking, hey, he might do this, or if they were thinking, uh, we just want you to know what happens at these. But whatever the intent, I fell in love with it. Because I watched what happened when family members started looking at recovery as a family, or they started looking at their own recovery. And I noticed it was this message, which I had not really thought about at that point, which is that the family member could have their own recovery that is not dependent on whether or not their loved one gets sober. And we were suddenly unhooking the family's happiness from the person with the addiction, which, by the way, is a fantastic move for families. A lot of family members get caught up in the idea, if you would only be better, then I could be okay. And I would say, that's a setup for everybody in any relationship. But if you're ever going to pick somebody and say to yourself, if you're okay, I'm okay, don't pick somebody with an addiction. It's like the last person on earth you should pick to rely <laughs> your happy. Like, go pick some random stranger who's doing well and say, okay, if you're, you're, if you're good, I'm good. But of course, we don't do that. We, we hook on to the people that we love and we think, I need them to be okay for me to be okay. And so I've been running family workshops. I probably started about six months after that, sort of interning in it. And then eventually they said, hey, this is yours. And I've been doing it ever since. And when I went to write this book, uh, I wasn't sure what I was going to write about. And I thought, you know, I should draw on this experience and write a book for family members. And I'm lucky a lot of people in recovery from their own addiction have said they benefited from the book and learned things from it. But it was really aimed at family members to say, here's what you should know if somebody you love has an addiction, just a hands-on how-to guide, what's going on in the brain, um, what should I expect if they go to treatment, what do I do if they don't go to treatment, what happens at a recovery meeting, what kind of recovery meetings are there, what's available for family members, how do I communicate, how can I be happy whether they get sober or not? All of those kind of questions that I kept running into in doing these family workshops, I thought, let me see if I can just create a book that someone could pick up and read and understand those things. So not good at short answers. There's, there's the long form. Hey, at least I didn't start with the Big Bang. So in any case, so here we are. And that's how I ended up on this show talking about a book. Amazing. Oh my gosh. Well, thank you so much for sharing your vulnerability and your story. And I always believe in turning pain into purpose and holy cow, have you ever done that? You know, um, you've really created a wonderful um, platform and community as well as book now, and you're supporting so many people. So I just, I just want to celebrate that. And I just think that that's so, so touching and much needed, right? Oh my gosh. I always say like for every addict, there are like a whole like circle around them of family that is and spouses and friends that are affected by that addiction 
So you say so many amazing things there. I love this idea of that. Yes, unhooking. And now this is such a a concept that a lot of people talk about that a lot of people will bring to your attention when you're in the muck of loving someone with an addiction. Um, And so it's so hard to do. So this idea of unhooking, it's like, if you're okay, then I'm okay. It's like, but it's just like, we almost get sucked into that because we love these people in our lives so much and we care so much about them. So it's this idea of like, how do we get unhooked from it? Because we're, we're humans that are caring and compassionate and kind. And just like, we want the best for our loved ones. So this idea of like, how can I not care? I remember, I always say this. I remember Googling how not to care, (laughs) like literally how not to care. So can we unpack that idea of unhooking and maybe help our listeners through that concept? Absolutely. And so First of all, I'm going to point listeners towards a couple of recovery fellowships, which are really, really helpful by and for family members. One of them is called Al-Anon. That's kind of the grandmother of them all. And it was started somewhat inadvertently by the early wives of the early AA members. Um, And at first it was thought that alcoholics were all men. And so all the women that showed up made coffee and made cakes and hung around in the kitchen and kind of helping those, those men folk get sober in the 1930s. Um, they started talking amongst themselves and started to recognize, well, hold on a second, we have a lot in common. And an even bigger, like, weirder discovery, because no one even thought AA would work. It didn't have a name. It was just people getting together trying to stay sober. No one had any idea that this might actually work. It was even a bigger stretch to think that the same things that were helping the early AA members would also help the family members. Like, that was a huge intuitive leap. But the way part of the story goes is that... um, the wives of the first AA members would be driving them around looking for other alcoholics to kind of talk to and help and stuff like that. You know, just the alcoholics were helping the other alcoholics and they'd be talking in the car, the wives would. And they started to recognize this, but another thought came up of like, hold on a second, these guys are getting sober, they're learning, they're growing, they're developing this spiritual life. We don't want to get left behind. Like, you know, you don't want your spouse to just sort of run away and outgrow you. Now, this is a problem that lots of people who love someone with addiction would love to have, But nonetheless, this is kind of how it started out. But they really discovered that they could be happy regardless of whether or not their loved one got sober. And when you have that realization, that flash of insight, I could be okay even if they don't get sober. I can be okay even if they're not okay is not selfishness. In fact, and that's something that family members often express, well, wouldn't that be selfish if I can just be okay even though they're suffering? Well, your suffering is not improving their situation. It's not going to cure their addiction. It's not going to make their life particularly better. There may be times where it seems like they're even encouraging it, wanting you to feel guilty and all that, but that's only in the name of supporting their addiction. And supporting someone's addiction is not doing them any favors. So actually being able to unhook, or in Al and I, they say detach with love. Mm -hmm. If I can do that, and notice detach with love, not with anger, scorn. It's not about kicking people to the curb or saying, I'm never speaking to you again. Those things can happen. They may be the natural consequences of the chaos of addiction at some point or for some people. But in Al-Anon, what they're talking about is the idea that I can still love this person, but my emotional state is no longer going to be dependent on their actions. And that means I need to learn how to be okay within myself without saying my being okay depends on anybody else. And that turns out to be one of the most helpful things you can do for your loved one. Not because it's going to get them sober. 
because sometimes it's mistaken for that. Oh, if I just detach, then then that'll get them sober. It's about like tough love. I got to get tough love. That'll get them sober, you know, or I got to be more loving or less loving or whatever. But all of that, if we really boil it down to it, comes down to manipulation. I'm going to manipulate them sober. If I just act right, they'll be okay. Well, what I often tell the families is there's no magic chicken dance of sobriety. There's no set of moves if you just got it right. Because we, we can't take responsibility for other people's actions when it really comes down to it. So this idea of unhooking or detachment with love is about being able to say to myself, the most helpful thing I can do for my loved one is actually to work on my own recovery and not try to work on theirs. Now, the other group um, for people that maybe Alan doesn't totally connect for them that I would point to would be Smart Recovery Family and Friends. And Smart Recovery is another recovery fellowship that's much more recent than AA. They're not really in competition with each other. They're just two different flavors. Smart Recovery is based much more in cognitive behavior therapy or what they call rational emotive behavior therapy uh, from Albert Ellis. And where I work, actually, a place called Windmill Wellness Ranch, it's a treatment center where we offer both. We offer both to our clients and we offer both to our families. And so like we have a smart recovery family and friends meeting that our family members can go to. We have a family workshop they go to. So the family members can start to dig into their own recovery and find out how to do that without needing it to be about how their loved one is doing. And that's a beautiful thing. So I'm going to say that really that's what it all comes down to is that idea of feeling that I could be an okay person and I can feel good about myself and recognize that I'm actually doing the most helpful thing I can for the family if I focus myself on my own recovery. And that allows me to unhook from the person who's struggling in the addiction. Oh my gosh, you say so many amazing things. First of all, yes, sometimes we take this for granted, right? Like when I was in the muck of loving someone with an addiction, I had never heard of Al-Anon until someone said to me, like, Andrea, like you need to go to an Al-Anon meeting. Or like I had someone say, you know, like I knew about AA, but you don't necessarily know. And so thank you for bringing that back up because the listeners might be just fresh in this or just discovering or questioning whether or not their 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 loved one has an addiction or maybe there's a denial piece or they're just, they're not sure where to turn. So thank you for bringing that back up. And I do appreciate, you know, like there are so many, um, sources of support and just keep searching out places and things that might resonate with you. And so I really do appreciate you bringing up the the two main, like ones that, um, I guess that are shared very easily and that are amongst the treatment centers as well. And, um, and so you also bring up this idea, we can't take responsibility for others. I love that. And this is that idea of unhooking. And I think a lot of the recovery community is all about that, right? Like it's like taking the spotlight off of the addicted level when I'm putting it on you. And um, so I, I also love this idea like that you're, you, if you're okay, I'm okay. It's like that concept of like, well, wait a second, I can be okay despite anything that's going on in your life. And that is so empowering and such a really important message. Um, and so that idea of unhooking. And so let's, let's go back to this word recovery. So I know that a lot in the community, and I hear this a lot from a lot of my clients, it's like, well, why am I going through recovery? I'm not the one with an, an addiction. Like, you know, so can you speak to that a little bit? Absolutely. Well, recovery is to get, some, to recover something is to get it back, to get back something that we lost. And this can be a little bit of a tricky concept, partly because sometimes people don't recognize what they've lost. You know, you talked about earlier about the idea of somebody with an addiction affects all the people around them. Well, we, what we can actually see through research is it actually goes out two degrees of separation. So the person with the addiction affects the people around them who then affect the people around them. 
So almost everyone in our society has been impacted by addiction, whether they're aware of it or not. But a lot of times family members are so used to desperately trying to get this one person to be okay that they're almost blinded to or maybe put blinders on consciously or not to what they're going through. And I'll ask family members sometimes, so, you know, how are you doing with this? Oh, that doesn't matter. Oh, but it does. It totally matters because your functioning is now going to impact all the people around you. And if your functioning tanks because of someone else's addiction, and if let's get honest, if your functioning tanks because you are making a choice to focus on their addiction rather than your own well-being, everyone around you is going to be negatively impacted by that. And that's why I say it's actually the most responsible and helpful thing you can do is to focus on yourself and your own recovery. So to recover something, to get it back, we're trying to get back a sense of well-being, a sense of equilibrium, a sense of who we are, because sometimes people going through these things forget, who am I? What do I like? What do I enjoy? And I hear family members struggle with this question sometimes. You know, the two big questions, they'll say, where are you getting support? And they're like, da, 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 I don't know. <laughs> you know, my sister listens to me. Well, your sister is really emotionally hooked into what's happening right now. Who are you getting support from who is not emotionally tied to this situation? Um, well, I have some friends. Well, are they familiar with addiction, though? Have they been through this kind of thing? And this is why I keep recommending recovery fellowships, to talk to people who know the subject matter, have lived the solution, but are not personally attached to your family's case, so they're not wrapped up in it. Because without some of those things, the advice, no matter how well-meaning, can get pretty wacky. Um, so that brings us to that idea that through this process of working on yourself, you can start to recover who you are as a human being, just like the person with the addiction can start to recover who they are, even if they don't have any conscious memory of being okay. We can recover the idea of being okay and being comfortable in our own skin, comfortable in our lives, and not have it dependent on some outside thing. And for the person with the addiction, the outside thing might be a chemical or a behavior. And for the person who loves that, that person with the addiction, the outside thing could be the person with the addiction. Either way, we're turning to something outside of ourselves saying, please make me okay, and especially make me okay by changing something about the way I feel. And we can get out of that equation and recover who we are. So to me, that's what recovery is. Oh my gosh. I am so happy that you explained it in that way, because that is the thing that the recovery kind of had the, that concept of like, what do you mean? Like, I, I don't need recovery. I don't, I'm no have an addiction, but the way that you explain it is so amazing. I love that this idea of, you know, to get back. So the idea of recovery is to get you back. It's to get like equilibrium in your life, focusing back on your own well-being, and just, you know, know who you are tapping back into the person you are. And that is literally why I created the book and the podcast and everything like the SYCAM community is exactly that. It's so that people don't feel alone so they can get themselves back. So they have the courage to tap into their own power and their and prioritize their well-being, right? And so the way that you say that is so great. Like that is such a good definition of recovery. So if we change the definition for ourselves and we see it as a form of, you know what, I'm going to recover me, like get me back. Like recovery is 
for me um, is really, really profound. And I think that that kind of shifts the lens again, instead of like pointing the finger, like you need to go in recovery, you're addicted to the attic, you know, how sometimes you get feel like the fingers are pointing. And so, um, yeah, have you heard that before? Like you're addicted to oh, the addict and yeah. <laughs> absolutely. I've probably said it during my early days of doing family work, but you know, as I had more experience and saw more things happen, read more research, finished my own education, which I was doing in the process of doing this, um, then certain things just became more clear. You know, shame and blame may motivate some people to get into recovery, but it's never going to sustain it. In fact, there's a very sharp and quick point of diminishing returns where somebody might get into recovery, whether it's a family member or as a person with the addiction directly because of shame and blame and, you know, guilt or things like that. But those things will then start to undermine the exact same recovery process. So it's it's important to get out of those as quickly as possible. So that finger pointing, you know, family members will turn on each other in these kind of situations. Well, you're the problem. If you would just stop giving them money. Well, if you would just be more loving and let them in the house. Well, you're letting them in the house is making it happen. It's like everybody pretends that they have control over this addiction. Everybody tells themselves what they call the illusion of control. The idea that yeah. if I just did it right and even worse get into the idea if I could just get my family members to do it right, then Johnny or Susie or whoever, then they'd be okay. And it's all a huge illusion. And what I say is to the family members, you know, you look and say, if my loved one could be okay, then I could be happy. I'm going to say, cut out the middleman. Cut out that person, whether it's another family member who you think is doing it wrong or the person with the addiction themselves. Cut them out of the equation. Doesn't mean cut them out of your life. Just cut them out of that equation and say, I'm going to go directly for learning how to be happy and no longer make it about getting someone else to behave right so then I can be happy. Oh and that might gosh. mean for some of us, we got to face old childhood messages, things we grew up with. I don't have a lot of clients come through where they're the only person in their entire family tree with an addiction. It is so common. And so especially common. if you recognize that, that addiction expands beyond drugs, which, by the way, drugs totally includes alcohol by any scientific definition, but there's a lot of people on alcohol. Well, I don't do any of those drugs. Uh, well, actually, you do. Um, you know, I've given speeches to, you know, 50, 100 social workers and say, like, okay, who here has never tried any drugs? And like half the, half the hands go up and say, by the way, drugs includes alcohol. All the hands go down. Like mm -hmm. almost everyone in America has tried a drug. Some of us were walking into a trap and didn't know it for reasons of genetics and environment and all these kinds of things that happen. I always tell the family members, nobody decided to have an addiction. They may have decided to do an addictive thing, but they didn't decide to have an addiction because there's too many factors that go into that that are beyond our control. But if I look at all of that, I'd say addiction usually is all over the place in a given family tree whether people talk about it or not, which means that family patterns around addiction have probably been around for generations and generations. And regardless of whether or not the addiction skipped a generation or two, because sometimes that happens, the family patterns will get passed down to everybody. Don't talk about the feelings. We don't air our dirty laundry in the street. Better not to say anything. Or my mom would always say, oh, just water under the bridge, honey. Better that we don't talk about it. I'm like, I've learned to disagree with that statement. <laughs> Love my mom, but I'm not going with that theory of life. But I can look at her and say, that probably got passed down from her great, 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 great grandmothers who had to deal with addiction. And there was no recovery. There were no tools. We just had to figure out how to get through it. And that might involve shutting down our own feelings. It might involve propping somebody else up. It might involve the idea, if I could just make them okay, the family is going to survive. 
And so all this stuff gets passed down. So some of us are going to have to relearn how to communicate with other human beings and how to talk to ourselves in order to find that recovery. But all I can say is, boy, is it worth it? Because especially if you don't want to make it all about you, consider this is now what you're going to pass down to future generations. What are, what are, the, what are our great, 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 great grandkids who we're never going to meet? What are they going to get from our generation? Is it going to be more addiction, more dysfunction, more chaos and stress around, around addiction? Or can we start to pass recovery down and make that part of the family tree? And I really believe we can because I've seen it happen in my own family and I've had the great honor and benefit of being able to see other people make it start to happen in their families. So wonderful. And you raised so many amazing points here. And then there's that whole denial piece too, right? Um, so people, you know, in denial, so they half the time there is and like there is addiction, um, but then everyone's in denial. So we might be even touched by it, but not even realize it. So there's that whole denial piece too. And then I love that you bring this idea that everyone, it's like a whole illusion of control. Like it's like we're we're trying to almost like, well, if we do this, then this might happen. Or if they're okay, then our family will be okay or if you know so this whole idea of illusion of control is so profound and it's so common um and then i do love the way that you say shame and blame are not ever it doesn't work it just doesn't work and then this idea too is that like let's stop saying addicted to the addict because <laughs> that language is so shaming and blaming and um so i'm so thrilled that you that you said that and then the other piece that i love is just this whole idea of getting out of the addiction equation like remove yourself out of the equation like that's going on so how can you pull yourself out of that equation and so I would love to talk a little bit more about that is that for the listener, right? It's like, well, how do I do that? Like, how do I actually, you know, pull myself out beyond just, you know, showing up in groups like at SYKM or an Al-Anon meeting or smart recovery It's like, how do I like actually start to do that? And I would love to just like, maybe we can delve in and give the, the listener some usable, tangible nuggets here. Absolutely. Well, you touched on one big thing, which is seeking social support. And I'm a total research geek here. So if you look in the back of my book, there's like pages and pages of references because I really wanted to back the things I set up with science to be able to say, okay, yeah. science shows us, research shows, and all the research I wanted to have within about five years, you know, the, the most recent five years of writing the book so that you can look at things and say like, okay, Casey's not just theorizing here. There are, there are some facts behind this. So the shame and blame thing, there's research to show that it doesn't work, that it actually gets in the way. And again, the studies will show, okay, it, it starts the ball rolling, but it doesn't keep the ball rolling. In fact, it gets in the way. Similarly, we can look and say, what does research tell us about human change? Um, so there's a couple things. You mentioned the denial. There were a couple of researchers, Prochowski and DiClemente, who came up with a theory of how people change that seems to apply not just to individuals, but also families, communities, societies, companies, organizations, you name it. And the first stage in that is what we call pre-contemplation. And that is before we think there is a problem. Or if there is a problem, it's not our problem. So we can point it somewhere else. So the example I always use on that is that if my jeans are getting too tight, I decide, you know, it's probably the dryer. That's the problem. The dryer is shrinking my jeans. Um, we get into contemplation when we start to think, maybe there is an issue and maybe I'm contributing something to it. And so for family members, if you're thinking like, how do I start this process of recovery? One thing to do is start looking and say, what's my part in things? Now, here's a big thing. My part in things and looking for it doesn't mean it's all my fault. People often make that leap that is not really true. The idea to look and see what am I contributing 
doesn't mean what am I contributing to the addiction. It's like, what am I contributing to my own unhappiness? And if I can start to get honest with that, then I can start to look. That's contemplation saying, ah, oh, maybe I'm part of the equation. Maybe it's not the dryer. Maybe it's the donuts. Maybe I need to change something a little bit. Now, the thing about this is that we can say, okay, cool, the person's got it. But at that point, we don't have it. We can easily slip back into pre-contemplation. It can be uncomfortable to look at those things and go like, oh, well, you know, nah, it's really the dryer. Or, you know, nah, they're just doing what kids do in college. It's, you know, it's real, probably not a problem. I did the same thing as a kid. Whatever. We justify it to ourselves. But when that's uncomfortable enough, we'll stay in contemplation enough to start making a plan. Some would, some people call that stage planning. I think Petrosky and DiClemente call it um, preparation. So we're starting to look and say, what am I going to do differently? So that could be saying, I'm going to go to a meeting, or I'm going to call a counselor who understands addiction and family issues, or I'm going to talk to somebody who understands this, or I'm going to pick up a book, or I'm going to join Andrea's group. Whatever it is you decide, I'm going to make a plan. Now, at that point, we say, well, we've got a plan. We're good to go. Well, no, we could still go back to pre-contemplation, but if we can stick with the course, then we get into the stage called action. And action is where we're actually trying something new. But here's the emphasis. We're just trying something new. It's kind of like trying on a new pair of shoes or a jacket at the store, looking in the mirror, walking around. Is this me? Does it fit? We're kind of trying something new. So whether we're seeing our loved one start trying to be sober or trying something different at their end, we go, oh, they're there. They made it. It's like, no, they're trying something new. We don't know what's going to happen. But the same thing applies for us as family members to look and say like, oh, okay, I'm trying something new. I don't know if I'm going to stick with it or not. Let's see how it is. But if we can stick with that, then we get into the final stage, which is called maintenance. And maintenance, I think kind of poorly named when it comes to recovery, but, you know, they were doing their best. Maintenance is where it's become part of our life. So I've gone from my genes are tight to maybe it's my issue. Preparation might be I'm going to join a gym. Uh, action is I'm trying the gym, but of course the business model for a gym is based on the idea that you're not going to keep showing up. So if I stick with it though, and it's maintenance, I can tell that because the people around me are no longer like super excited or surprised when I do these healthy things. If I say like, Hey, I'm going to go jogging. Everyone's going like, Whoa, good for you. I know you can do it, dude. They're like, okay, see when you get back. And that's where I am in my recovery today. If I say to my family, Hey, I'm going to go to a meeting. They're not thinking like, wow, good for you, dad. You're doing it. They're like, okay, great. Have a good meeting. You know, what time are you going to be back? Oh, probably about an hour and a half. All right, great. See you then. Right? It's just become part of life. And that's where we want to get, whether we're someone with an addiction directly or if we're a family member, to look and say, where am I in the stages of change? So that starting point might simply be simple appraisal. And I talk about this in my book, Realistic Hope, kind of here are the stages of change. Here's what it might look like for you as a family member. And here's how you can move yourself along into the next stage so you can get to sort of that holy grail of maintenance to say, I am now a person in recovery and this is just sort of my life in the sense that it's not new. I'm much less likely to go back. And if I do go back and sort of touch the stove to see if it's still hot, it's much easier to get back into the maintenance stage. So I'd say, first of all, for family members, just doing that simple self-appraisal, connecting with other people. Because again, the research shows really distinctly that if we want to make a change in our lives, one of the biggest factors that will increase our chances of success is hanging out with other people who are trying to make that change. So if I'm going to the gym, I'm hanging out with other people who are working out. It makes it easier. If I'm in recovery, I go to a recovery group. It makes it easier. So those would be simple tips that I'd start with. Talk to other people that have been through it, whether it's through a podcast and hearing from them, reading a book, going to a group, something where you can connect and know that you are not alone. Because it's one thing to intellectually know we're not alone. It's a whole other thing to 
be viscerally with other people or hearing from other people or reading or hearing other people's voices and saying, okay, maybe I'm going to make it. Oh my gosh. I love everything that you said. And I'm obsessed with that change theory as well. (laughs) And um, yes, so definitely seeking out social support to know you're not alone, but not just mentally. I love that idea of being with others and viscerally feeling it and just um, actually not being alone. Right. And then this idea of following the change theory is so profound and just knowing that we are, it's dynamic. Like we can move through it. Like sometimes we might revert back. And then I also love that you make it from the perspective of us, people who love someone with an addiction, but also from the addict's perspective so that we can see it in others as well, going through this change theory or the steps of changes. And so, so let's go through it a little bit again. So it's this idea of pre-contemplation it's this idea of self-appraisal and kind of decide, okay, like, hmm, you know, and, and it's so funny to use the dryer thing because I've so done that. <laughs> it's like, maybe my dryer is shrinking my clothes. And then this idea of contemplation, like really thinking, well, what's my part in this? Like maybe, you know, I have been, you know, overeating or maybe my portions have increased or maybe those chips are sneaking back. And I don't know why we keep referring to food, but it's an easy one, right? It's an easy one. Yeah, it's an easy one to see. And then also a plan. I like that. Trying new things. It's like, you know, so then it's like testing the waters to see what works for you. And then this idea of it becoming a habit and repetition and making it a part of your world is is kind of the, the steps of that change theory. And then I love that. Like, yeah, I agree. This maintenance, the idea is once we can get, get to it. And that's why I'm obsessed with habit tracking is like, okay, here's what I would like to be, or this is how I want to be. And then like, well, what are all the actions that are going to help me to be that person like what what habits do I want to instill to help me you know to be that person I want to be so I think that's so profound how we can you know then start implementing right testing things implementing them on a regular basis so powerful well one of the reasons that I said I think uh, maintenance is a bit of misnomer is because when it comes to recovery I don't see a lot of maintenance sort of holding still and holding our gains what I see is a lot of growth and I haven't seen an upper limit to it. And that's illustrated for me. If I go to a recovery fellowship meeting, and I have sometimes for family, in some of the family fellowships, go to a recovery fellowship meeting, and I'll meet somebody who will mention that their spouse died sober of natural causes two, three years ago. And my first thought would be, then why are you going to meetings? But they're going to meetings because they keep learning and growing. They're going to meetings because they have the opportunity to be of service to other people and help the next person coming up. And one of the things that research also shows us is that to have a happy, meaningful life, we have to know that we are of service to others and to know that we have sometimes through a spiritual connection, something having nothing to do with spirituality, just knowing we're contributing to, contributing to something greater than ourselves that is meaningful to us, gives us a sense of meaning and purpose. And so sometimes that can be even turning the lens away from, I'm going to save this person who maybe doesn't even seem like they want to be saved, quote unquote to maybe helping out somebody who's actively looking for help, who's going through something I've been through. And I love this quote. I still haven't heard who actually said it. It just passed along to me through another podcast. Um, We're best suited to help the person we used to be. Oh my gosh, say that again. We are best suited to help the person we used to be. And so when we're desperately trying to help somebody who's in the throes of addiction and may not seem like they want to get out of it, we can say, maybe I don't need to pour all my energy into that right now. And maybe I should help somebody who looks like I did five years ago when they were just figuring out their loved one had an addiction. 
What can I do to maybe help that person who's eager for help? Oh my gosh, it's so good. And and you're so right, because there's so many people in um, our private Facebook group, the Saving You is Killing Me private Facebook group, and they are staying there because of the growth. It's like they maybe they've lost their addicted loved one, or maybe they've been discarded, or, you know, they're no longer, they've chosen to no longer be with their addicted loved one, or, you know, or it's, it's, they're still in their life. There's so many people in different stages. But to your point, it's like this idea, they're, they're, they're still there because of the growth and it's part of the maintenance and then they're being of service. And I love the way you put that. It's so true because I, I love that concept of struggling well. And one of the elements of post-traumatic growth is this concept of being of service, right? And helping people along that path. And so that is so beautiful and so true. And it feels so good to be able to help others who have gone through, you know, something that you are experienced with, or you've gone through yourself, not so much to get advice, just to feel the, your support and to feel that you're, you're there for them and that you understand what they're going through just for even compassion. Yeah. And it's so powerful to be able to look at somebody yourself and also when the time comes, have somebody look at you and say, okay, if you can do it, I can do it. Or just someone else has been through this and they're okay. And, and people have said this about all kinds of recovery fellowships, you know, whether it's for family members or people with addiction or mental health or anything like that, um, have said, you know, I, I went to my first meeting and as I was walking closer to the room, I thought I might be in the wrong place because I heard people full of joy and laughter and they sounded like they were okay. And I thought, well, this obviously can't be the place for the family members because, you know, family members are supposed to be suffering. And lo and behold, I get there and they are full of laughter and joy. And how could this be? And how can they be telling these stories where they obviously have been right where I am and they're okay and full of life now? How can I do that? And that sometimes is the gateway in that could never come from a professional saying, hey, I read this in a book and let me teach it to you. But being able to say, let's talk to some people who have been there directly and are now doing better. And you can ask them, how did you do it? And there are clear and distinct answers. And that's, that's pretty are. cool stuff. Oh my gosh, such cool stuff. And it, it reminds me of our well-being huddles. We we come in with dancing, like we've got music playing and we're all joyful and laughing. And yeah, we have moments, obviously, where we're sharing some heavy information of how addiction has affected us, but then how we took back our power, how we're tapping back into our, remember, recovery, getting us back, right? And so I just, you know, and, and also... I just want to thank you so much for taking your, not only your knowledge and your education, and then also taking your experience and like sandwiching those two together to help so many people and to be of service. And, um, your, your knowledge is just, you know, infinite. It's like, I feel like I could have you on here for hours and I think we should have you back and talk about your other, your other stuff, all about the spirituality stuff too, in the future. I think everybody. Yeah, everyone would benefit from that for sure. So if there is one last thing that you wanted to share with the listeners, what would that be? Mm. Above all, I'm just going to go, honestly, with the title of the book, Realistic Hope, um, to let family members know there is hope. And that hope is not based on somebody else acting right, somebody else getting their life together, but a realistic hope is one where you can look yourself in the mirror and learn to be okay. The realistic hope is that you can be okay regardless of how other people are doing and that that's not selfish, but it's actually one of the most selfless things you can do. 
Um, and I see sometimes, unfortunately, families are given some unrealistic hopes about it. Like, if you just do this, 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 and this, then your loved one will be okay. And the subtext is, if they're okay, you can be okay. And it's just such a setup. So that realistic hope to be able to look and say, I can learn to be okay within myself. Yes, with help from other people, but not reliant on somebody who's struggling with an addiction to suddenly pull their life together and have that be the reason I'm okay. I can learn to be okay regardless. And that actually frees them up to have the dignity of their own choices and the space to decide whether or not recovery is for them simply by you deciding that recovery is for you. Oh, recovery is for you. I love that realistic hope. Hope is for you. I always say that. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much, Casey. Ready? Ariega? Did I say it right? Ariaga? <laughs> uh, well, I've actually tested it. If you just type Casey and Realistic Hope in, the book will come up. <laughs> oh, yay. And of course, I'm going to put your links in the show notes and everyone's going to want to grab their copy and get a hold of you. So um, please, 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 you know, let us know what you're doing. Like where can people get a hold of you? If you want to share right here, I'll also include it in the show sure. notes. So if anyone wants to contact me directly, you can email me at addictionandthefamily at gmail.com. As I have to enunciate, that's not addiction in the family, it's addiction and the family. Um, helps kind of separate that addiction is not a part of the family, it's addiction and the family. Um, I also have a podcast called Addiction and the Family, so you can find me there. Uh, I have the book, Realistic Hope, Family Survival Guide for Facing Alcoholism and Other Addictions. That's available on Amazon, plus you know some other retailers, both in paperback and electronic form. And I have my brand new book called, you mentioned, you mentioned Spirituality for People Who Hate Spirituality, a primer. <laughs> it's all about how to find spirituality if you uh, struggle with those things, but you still want the benefits. Um, I'm on Twitter. I think the handle is at Addiction Family. And uh, got a Facebook group, Addiction and the Family, and also a Facebook group, Realistic Hope. And I'd love to see and hear from anybody that I can help in any way. Happy to be of service. Yay. Thank you so much, Casey, for being here and sharing your knowledge and your vulnerability. It, it just means the world to me and uh, our community is so grateful and thankful. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a blast. Thank you for listening. If you want additional support, you can head on over to our website at savingyouiskillingme.com, where we have a wonderful, supportive, compassionate community. We are here for you. You are not alone. We also have a private Facebook group and Instagram feed called Saving You Is Killing Me, Loving Someone With An Addiction. Be sure to subscribe here so you get the latest episodes. And of course, share this with your community and your support groups or anyone that's going through this struggle so we can all work together to take our lives back and restore joy. Thank you so much for joining me, not only today, but week after week. Although I wish we were meeting under different circumstances, I'm so grateful that I get to show up for you and share these episodes so that we can go on this journey together. Until next week, sending hugs.